Chapter 10 of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter 10. That summer passed, then the winter. The wet season began in the last days of September and continued all through October, November, and December. At long intervals would come a week of perfect days, the sky without a cloud, the air motionless but touched with a certain nimbleness, a faint effervescence that was exhilarating. Then without warning, during a night when a south wind blew, a gray scroll of cloud would unroll and hang high over the city, and the rain would come pattering down again, at first in scattered showers, then in an uninterrupted drizzle. All day long Trina sat in the bay window of the sitting-room that commanded a view of a small section of Polk Street. As often as she raised her head she could see the big market, a confectionery store, a bell-hanger shop, and farther on, above the roofs, the glass skylights and water tanks of the big public baths. In the nearer foreground ran the street itself. The cable-cars trundled up and down, thumping heavily over the joints of the rails. Market-carts by the score came and went, driven at a great rate by preoccupied young men in their shirt-sleeves, with pencils behind their ears, or by reckless boys in blood-stained butcher's aprons. Upon the sidewalks the little world of Polk Street swarmed and jostled through its daily round of life. On fine days the great ladies from the avenue, one block above, invaded the street, appearing before the butcher stalls, intent upon their day's marketing. On rainy days their servants, the Chinese cooks or the second girls, took their places, these servants gave themselves great airs, carrying their big cotton umbrellas as they had seen their mistresses carry their parasols, and haggling in supercilious fashion with the market men, their chins up in the air. The rain persisted. Everything in the range of Trina's vision, from the tarpaulins on the market cart horses to the panes of glass in the roof of the public baths, looked glazed and varnished. The asphalt of the sidewalk shone like the surface of a patent leather boot, Every hollow in the street held its little puddle that winked like an eye each time a drop of rain struck into it. Trina still continued to work for Uncle Olbermann. In the morning she busied herself about the kitchen, the bedroom, and the sitting room, but in the afternoon, for two or three hours after lunch, she was occupied with the Noah's Ark animals. She took her work to the bay window, spreading out a great square of canvas underneath her chair to catch the chips and shavings, which she used afterwards for lighting fires. One after another she caught up the little blocks of straight-grained pine. The knife flashed between her fingers, the little figure grew rapidly under her touch, was finished and ready for painting in a wonderfully short time, and was tossed into the basket that stood at her elbow. But very often during that rainy winter after her marriage Trina would pause in her work, her hands falling idly into her lap, her eyes, her narrow pale blue eyes, growing wide and thoughtful as she gazed unseeing out into the rain-washed street. She loved McTeague now with a blind, unreasoning love that admitted of no doubt or hesitancy. Indeed, it seemed to her that it was only after her marriage with the dentist that she had really begun to love him. With the absolute final surrender of herself, the irrevocable ultimate submission, had come an affection the like of which she had never dreamed in the old B Street days. But Trina loved her husband, not because she fancied she saw in him any of those noble and generous qualities that inspire affection. The dentist might or might not possess them. It was all one with Trina. She loved him because she had given herself to him freely, unreservedly, had merged her individuality into his. She was his. She belonged to him for ever and ever. Nothing that he could do, so she told herself, 
Nothing that she herself could do could change her in this respect. McTeague might cease to love her, might leave her, might even die. It would be all the same. She was his. But it had not been so at first. During those long, rainy days of the fall, days when Trina was left alone for hours, at that time when the excitement and novelty of the honeymoon were dying down, when the new household was settling into its grooves, she passed through many an hour of misgiving, of doubt, and even of actual regret. Never would she forget one Sunday afternoon in particular. She had been married but three weeks. After dinner, she and little Miss Baker had gone for a bit of a walk to take advantage of an hour's sunshine and to look at some wonderful geraniums in a florist's window on Sutter Street. They had been caught in a shower, and on returning to the flat, the little dressmaker had insisted on fetching Trina up to her tiny room and brewing her a cup of strong tea to take the chill off. The two women had chatted over their teacups the better part of the afternoon. Then Trina had returned to her rooms. For nearly three hours, McTeague had been out of her thoughts, and as she came through their little suite, singing softly to herself, she suddenly came upon him quite unexpectedly. Her husband was in the dental parlors, lying back in his operating chair, fast asleep. The little stove was crammed with coke. The room was overheated, the air thick and foul with the odors of ether, of coke gas, of stale beer, and cheap tobacco. The dentist sprawled his gigantic limbs over the worn velvet of the operating chair. His coat and vest and shoes were off, and his huge feet, in their thick gray socks, dangled over the edge of the footrest. His pipe, fallen from his half-open mouth, had spilled the ashes into his lap, while on the floor at his side stood the half-empty pitcher of steam beer. His head had rolled limply upon one shoulder, his face was red with sleep, and from his open mouth came a terrific sound of snoring. For a moment Trina stood looking at him as he lay thus, prone, inert, half-dressed, and stupefied with the heat of the room, the steam beer, and the fumes of the cheap tobacco. Then her little chin quivered and a sob rose to her throat. She fled from the parlors, and locking herself in her bedroom, flung herself on the bed and burst into an agony of weeping. Ah, no, ah, no, she could not love him. It had all been a dreadful mistake, and now it was irrevocable. She was bound to this man for life. If it was as bad as this now, only three weeks after her marriage, how would it be in the years to come? Year after year, month after month, hour after hour, she was to see this same face with its salient jaw, was to feel the touch of those enormous red hands, was to hear the heavy elephantine tread of those huge feet in thick gray socks. Year after year, day after day, there would be no change and it would last all her life. Either it would be one long continued revulsion, or else, worse than all, she would come to be content with him, would come to be like him, would sink to the level of steam beer and cheap tobacco, and all her pretty ways, her clean, trim little habits would be forgotten, since they would be thrown away upon her stupid, brutish husband. Her husband? That was her husband in there. She could yet hear his snores. For life. For life. A great despair seized upon her. She buried her face in the pillow and thought of her mother with an infinite longing. Aroused at length by the chittering of the canary, McTeague had awakened slowly. After a while he had taken down his concertina and played upon it the six very mournful airs that he knew. Face downward upon the bed, Trina still wept. Throughout that little suite could be heard but two sounds, the lugubrious strains of the concertina and the noise of stifled weeping. That her husband should be ignorant of her distress seemed to Trina an additional grievance. With perverse inconsistency, she began to wish him to come to her, to comfort her. He ought to know that she was in trouble, that she was lonely and unhappy. Oh, Mac, she called in a trembling voice, 
but the concertina still continued to wail and lament. Then Trina wished she were dead, and on the instant jumped up and ran into the dental parlors, and threw herself into her husband's arms, crying, "'Oh, Mac, dear, love me, love me big. I'm so unhappy.' "'What? What? What?' the dentist exclaimed, staring up bewildered, a little frightened. "'Nothing, nothing, only love me, love me always and always.' But this first crisis, this momentary revolt, as much a matter of high-strung feminine nerves as of anything else, passed, and in the end Trina's affection for her old bear grew in spite of herself. She began to love him more and more, not for what he was, but for what she had given up to him. Only once again did Trina undergo a reaction against her husband, and then it was but the matter of an instant, brought on curiously enough by the sight of a bit of egg on McTeague's heavy mustache one morning just after breakfast. Then, too, the pair had learned to make concessions, little by little, and all unconsciously they adapted their modes of life to suit each other. Instead of sinking to McTeague's level, as she had feared, Trina found that she could make McTeague rise to hers, and in this saw a solution of many a difficult and gloomy complication. For one thing, the dentist began to dress a little better, Trina even succeeding in inducing him to wear a high silk hat and a frock coat of a Sunday. Next, he relinquished his Sunday afternoon's nap and beer in favor of three or four hours spent in the park with her, the weather permitting, so that gradually Trina's misgivings ceased, or when they did assail her, she could at last meet them with a shrug of the shoulders, saying to herself, meanwhile, well, it's done now, and it can't be helped. One must make the best of it. During the first months of their married life, these nervous relapses of hers had alternated with brusque outbursts of affection when her only fear was that her husband's love did not equal her own. Without an instant's warning, she would clasp him about the neck, rubbing her cheek against his, murmuring, "'Dear old Mac, I love you so. I love you so. Oh, aren't we happy together, Mac, just us two and no one else? You love me as much as I love you, don't you, Mac? Oh, if you shouldn't, if you shouldn't!' But by the middle of the winter, Trina's emotions, oscillating at first from one extreme to another, commenced to settle themselves to an equilibrium of calmness and placid quietude. Her household duties began more and more to absorb her attention, for she was an admirable housekeeper, keeping the little suite in marvelous good order and regulating the schedule of expenditure with an economy that often bordered on positive niggardliness. It was a passion with her to save money. In the bottom of her trunk in the bedroom, she hid a brass match safe that answered the purposes of a savings bank. Each time she added a quarter or a half dollar to the little store, she laughed and sang with a veritable childish delight whereas if the butcher or milkman compelled her to pay an overcharge she was unhappy for the rest of the day she did not save this money for any ulterior purpose she hoarded instinctively without knowing why responding to the dentist's remonstrances with yes yes i know i'm a little miser i know it trina had always been an economical little body but it was only since her great winning in the lottery that she had become especially penurious no doubt in her fear lest their great good luck should demoralize them and lead to habits of extravagance she had recoiled too far in the other direction never 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 should a penny of that miraculous fortune be spent rather should it be added to it was a nest egg a monstrous rock-like nest egg not so large however but that it could be made larger already by the end of that winter trina had begun to make up the deficit of two hundred dollars that she had been forced to expend on the preparations for her marriage McTeague, on his part, never asked himself nowadays whether he loved Trina the wife as much as he had loved Trina the young girl. 
There had been a time when to kiss Trina, to take her in his arms, had thrilled him from head to heel with a happiness that was beyond words. Even the smell of her wonderful, odorous hair had sent a sensation of faintness all through him. That time was long past now. Those sudden outbursts of affection on the part of his little woman, outbursts that only increased in vehemence the longer they lived together, puzzled rather than pleased him. He had come to submit to them good-naturedly, answering her passionate inquiries with a, "'Sure, sure, Trina, sure I love you. What, what's the matter with you?' There was no passion in the dentist's regard for his wife. He dearly liked to have her near him. He took an enormous pleasure in watching her as she moved about their rooms, very much at home, gay and singing from morning till night, and it was his great delight to call her into the dental parlors when a patient was in the chair, and, while he held the plugger, to have her wrap in the gold fillings with the little boxwood mallet as he had taught her. But that tempest of passion, that overpowering desire that had suddenly taken possession of him that day when he had given her ether, again when he had caught her in his arms in the B Street station, and again and again during the early days of their married life, rarely stirred him now. On the other hand, he was never assailed with doubts as to the wisdom of his marriage. McTeague had relapsed to his wonted stolidity. He never questioned himself, never looked for motives, never went to the bottom of things. The year following upon the summer of his marriage was a time of great contentment for him. After the novelty of the honeymoon had passed, he slipped easily into the new order of things without a question. Thus his life would be for years to come. Trina was there, he was married and settled. He accepted the situation. The little animal comforts which for him constituted the enjoyment of life were ministered to at every turn, or when they were interfered with, as in the case of his Sunday afternoon's nap and beer, some agreeable substitute was found. In her attempts to improve McTeague, to raise him from the stupid animal life to which he had been accustomed in his bachelor days, Trina was tactful enough to move so cautiously and with such slowness that the dentist was unconscious of any process of change. In the matter of the high silk hat, it seemed to him that the initiative had come from himself. Gradually, the dentist improved under the influence of his little wife. He no longer went abroad with frayed cuffs about his huge red wrists, or worse, without any cuffs at all. Trina kept his linen clean and mended, doing most of his washing herself, and insisting that he should change his flannels, thick red flannels they were, with enormous bone buttons, once a week, his linen shirts twice a week, and his collars and cuffs every second day. She broke him of the habit of eating with his knife. She caused him to substitute bottled beer in the place of steam beer, and she induced him to take off his hat to Miss Baker, to Heise's wife, and to the other women of his acquaintance. McTeague no longer spent an evening at Frenna's. Instead of this, he brought a couple of bottles of beer up to the rooms and shared it with Trina. In his parlors, he was no longer gruff and indifferent to his female patients. He arrived at that stage where he could work and talk to them at the same time. He even accompanied them to the door and held it open for them when the operation was finished, bowing them out with great nods of his huge, square-cut head. Besides all this, he began to observe the broader, larger interests of life, interests that affected him not as an individual, but as a member of a class, a profession, or a political party. He read the papers. He subscribed to a dental magazine. On Easter, Christmas, and New Year's, he went to church with Trina. He commenced to have opinions, convictions. It was not fair to deprive taxpaying women of the privilege to vote. A university education should not be a prerequisite for admission to a dental college. The Catholic priests were to be restrained in their efforts to gain control of the public schools. But most wonderful of all, McTeague began to have ambitions, very vague, very confused ideas of something better, ideas for the most part borrowed from Trina. 
Some day, perhaps, he and his wife would have a house of their own. What a dream! A little home all to themselves, with six rooms and a bath, with a grass plat in front, and calla lilies. Then there would be children. He would have a son, whose name would be Daniel, who would go to high school, and perhaps turn out to be a prosperous plumber or house painter. Then the son Daniel would marry a wife, and they would all live together in that six-room and bathhouse. Daniel would have little children. McTeague would grow old among them all. The dentist saw himself as a venerable patriarch surrounded by children and grandchildren. So the winter passed. It was a season of great happiness for the McTeagues. The new life jostled itself into its grooves. A routine began. On weekdays they rose at half-past six, being awakened by the boy who brought the bottled milk and who had instructions to pound upon the bedroom door in passing. Trina made breakfast, coffee, bacon and eggs, and a roll of Vienna bread from the bakery. The breakfast was eaten in the kitchen, on the round deal table covered with the shiny oilcloth table spread tacked on. After breakfast, the dentist immediately betook himself to his parlors to meet his early morning appointments, those made with the clerks and shop girls who stopped in for half an hour on their way to their work. Trina, meanwhile, busied herself about the suite, clearing away the breakfast, sponging off the oilcloth table spread, making the bed, pottering about with a broom or duster or cleaning rack. Towards ten o'clock she opened the windows to air the rooms, then put on her drab jacket, her little round turban with its red wing, took the butcher's and grocer's books from the knife basket in the drawer of the kitchen table, and descended to the street, where she spent a delicious hour, now in the huge market across the way, now in the grocer's store with its fragrant aroma of coffee and spices, and now before the counters of the haberdashers, intent on a bit of shopping, turning over ends of veiling, strips of elastic, or silvers of whalebone. On the street she rubbed elbows with the great ladies of the avenue, in their beautiful dresses, or at intervals she met an acquaintance or two, Miss Baker, or Heise's lame wife, or Mrs. Ryer. At times she passed the flat and looked up at the windows of her home, marked by the huge golden muller that projected, flashing from the bay window of the parlors. She saw the open windows of the sitting-room, the Nottingham lace curtains stirring and billowing in the draft, and she caught sight of Maria Macapa's toweled head as the Mexican maid-of-all-work went to and fro in the suite, sweeping or carrying away the ashes. Occasionally, in the windows of the parlors, she beheld McTeague's rounded back as he bent to his work. Sometimes, even, they saw each other and waved their hands gaily in recognition. By eleven o'clock, Trina returned to the flat, her brown net reticule, once her mother's, full of parcels. At once, she set about getting lunch, sausages, perhaps, with mashed potatoes, or last evening's joint warmed over or made into a stew, chocolate, which Trina adored, and a side dish or two a salted herring or a couple of artichokes or a salad at half-past twelve the dentist came in from the parlors bringing with him the smell of creosote and of ether they sat down to lunch in the sitting-room they told each other of their doings throughout the forenoon trina showed her purchases mcteague recounted the progress of an operation at one o'clock they separated the dentist returning to the parlors trina settling to her work on the noah's ark animals at about three o'clock she put this work away, and for the rest of the afternoon was variously occupied. Sometimes it was the mending, sometimes the wash, sometimes new curtains to be put up, or a bit of carpet to be tacked down, or a letter to be written, or a visit, generally to Miss Baker, to be returned. Towards five o'clock the old woman, whom they had hired for that purpose, came to cook supper, for even Trina was not equal to the task of preparing three meals a day. This woman was French, and was known to the flat as Augustine, no one taking enough interest in her to inquire for her last name. All that was known of her was that she was a decayed French laundress. 
miserably poor, her trade long since ruined by Chinese competition. Augustine cooked well, but she was otherwise undesirable, and Trina lost patience with her at every moment. The old Frenchwoman's most marked characteristic was her timidity. Trina could scarcely address her a simple direction without Augustine quailing and shrinking. A reproof, however gentle, threw her into an agony of confusion, while Trina's anger promptly reduced her to a state of nervous collapse, wherein she lost all power of speech, while her head began to bob and nod with an incontrollable twitching of the muscles, much like the oscillations of the head of a toy donkey. Her timidity was exasperating. Her very presence in the room unstrung the nerves, while her morbid eagerness to avoid offense only served to develop in her a clumsiness that was at times beyond belief. More than once Trina had decided that she could no longer put up with Augustine, but each time she retained her as she reflected upon her admirably cooked cabbage soups and tapioca puddings, and which in Trina's eyes was her chiefest recommendation, the pittance for which she was contented to work. Augustine had a husband. He was a spirit medium, a professor. At times he held seances in the larger rooms of the flat, playing vigorously upon a mouth organ and invoking a familiar whom he called Edna, and whom he asserted was an Indian maiden. The evening was a period of relaxation for Trina and McTeague. They had supper at six, after which McTeague smoked his pipe and read the papers for half an hour, while Trina and Augustine cleared away the table and washed the dishes. Then, as often as not, they went out together. One of their amusements was to go downtown after dark and promenade Market and Kearney Streets. It was very gay. A great many others were promenading there also. All of the stores were brilliantly lighted and many of them still open. They walked about aimlessly, looking into the shop windows. Trina would take McTeague's arm, and he, very much embarrassed at that, would thrust both hands into his pockets and pretend not to notice. They stopped before the jeweler's and milliner's windows, finding a great delight in picking out things for each other, saying how they would choose this and that if they were rich. Trina did most of the talking. McTeague merely approving by a growl or a movement of the head or shoulders, she was interested in the displays of some of the cheaper stores, but he found an irresistible charm in an enormous golden muller with four prongs that hung at a corner of Kearney Street. Sometimes they would look at Mars or at the moon through the street telescopes, or sit for a time in the rotunda of a vast department store where a band played every evening. Occasionally they met Heise the harness maker and his wife, with whom they had become acquainted. Then the evening was concluded by a four-cornered party in the Luxembourg, a quiet German restaurant under a theater. Trina had a tamale and a glass of beer. Mrs. Hyes, who was a decayed writing teacher, ate salads with glasses of grenadine and currant syrups. Hyes drank cocktails and whiskey straight and urged the dentist to join him. But McTeague was obstinate, shaking his head. I can't drink that stuff, he said. It don't agree with me somehow. I go kind of crazy after two glasses. So he gorged himself with beer and frankfurter sausages plastered with German mustard. When the annual mechanics fair opened, McTeague and Trina often spent their evenings there, studying the exhibits carefully, since in Trina's estimation, education meant knowing things and being able to talk about them. Wearying of this, they would go up into the gallery, and leaning over, look down into the huge amphitheater full of light and color and movement. There rose to them the vast shuffling noise of thousands of feet and a subdued roar of conversation like the sound of a great mill. Mingled with this was the purring of distant machinery, the splashing of a temporary fountain, and the rhythmic jangling of a brass band, while in the piano exhibit a hired performer was playing upon a concert grand with a great flourish. Nearer at hand they could catch ends of conversation and notes of laughter, the noise of moving dresses, and the rustle of stiffly starched skirts. 
Here and there school children elbowed their way through the crowd, crying shrilly, their hands full of advertisement pamphlets, fans, picture cards, and toy whips, while the air itself was full of the smell of fresh popcorn. They even spent some time in the art gallery. Trina's cousin Selina, who gave lessons in hand-painting at two bits an hour, generally had an exhibit on the walls, which they were interested to find. It usually was a bunch of yellow poppies painted on black velvet and framed in gilt. They stood before it some little time, hazarding their opinions, and then moved on slowly from one picture to another. Trina had McTeague buy a catalog and made a duty of finding the title of every picture. This, too, she told McTeague, as a kind of education one ought to cultivate. Trina professed to be fond of art, having perhaps acquired a taste for painting and sculpture from her experience with the Noah's Ark animals. Of course, she told the dentist, I'm no critic. I only know what I like. She knew that she liked the ideal heads, lovely girls with flowing straw-colored hair and immense upturned eyes. These always had for title reverie, or an idol, or dreams of love. I think those are lovely, don't you, Mac? she said. Yes, yes, answered McTeague, nodding his head, bewildered, trying to understand. Yes, yes, lovely, that's the word. Are you dead sure now, Trina, that all that's hand-painted just like the poppies? Thus the winter passed, a year went by, then two. The little life of Polk Street, the life of small traders, drug clerks, grocers, stationers, plumbers, dentists, doctors, spirit mediums, and the like, ran on monotonously in its accustomed grooves. The first three years of their married life wrought little change in the fortunes of the McTeagues. In the third summer, the branch post office was moved from the ground floor of the flat to a corner farther up the street in order to be near the cable line that ran mail cars. Its place was taken by a German saloon, called a Weinstube, in the face of the protests of every female lodger. A few months later, quite a little flurry of excitement ran through the street on the occasion of the Polk Street Open Air Festival, organized to celebrate the introduction there of electric lights. The festival lasted three days and was quite an affair. The street was garlanded with yellow and white bunting. There were processions and floats and brass bands. Marcus Schuller was in his element during the whole time of the celebration. He was one of the marshals of the parade, and was to be seen at every hour of the day, wearing a borrowed high hat and cotton gloves, and galloping a broken-down cab horse over the cobbles. He carried a baton covered with yellow and white calico, with which he made furious passes and gestures. His voice was soon reduced to a whisper by continued shouting, and he raged and fretted over trifles till he wore himself thin. McTeague was disgusted with him. As often as Marcus passed the window or the flat, the dentist would mutter, "'Ah, you think you're smart, don't you?' The result of the festival was the organizing of a body known as the Polk Street Improvement Club, of which Marcus was elected secretary. McTeague and Trina often heard of him in this capacity through Highs the Harness-Maker. Marcus had evidently come to have political aspirations. It appeared that he was gaining a reputation as a maker of speeches, delivered with fiery emphasis, and occasionally reprinted in the progress, the organ of the club, outraged constituencies, opinions warped by personal bias, eyes blinded by party prejudice, etc. Of her family, Trina heard every fortnight in letters from her mother. The upholstery business which Mr. Sipa had bought was doing poorly, and Mrs. Sipa bewailed the day she had ever left B Street. Mr. Sipa was losing money every month. Auguste, who was to have gone to school, had been forced to go work in the store, picking waste. Mrs. Sipa was obliged to take a lodger or two. Affairs were in a very bad way. Occasionally she spoke of Marcus. Mr. Sipa had not forgotten him despite his own troubles, 
but still had an eye out for someone whom Marcus could go in with on a ranch. It was toward the end of this period of three years that Trina and McTeague had their first serious quarrel. Trina had talked so much about having a little house of their own at some future day that McTeague had at length come to regard the affair as the end and object of all their labors. For a long time they had had their eyes upon one house in particular. It was situated on a cross street close by, between Polk Street and the Great Avenue one block above, and hardly a Sunday afternoon passed that Trina and McTeague did not go and look at it. They stood for fully half an hour upon the other side of the street, examining every detail of its exterior, hazarding guesses as to the arrangement of the rooms, commenting upon its immediate neighborhood, which was rather sordid. The house was a wooden two-story arrangement, built by a misguided contractor in a sort of hideous Queen Anne style, all scrolls and meaningless millwork, with a cheap imitation of stained glass in the light over the door. There was a microscopic front yard full of dusty calla lilies. The front door boasted an electric bell, but for the McTeagues, it was an ideal home. Their idea was to live in this little house, the dentist retaining merely his office in the flat. The two places were but around the corner from each other, so that McTeague could lunch with his wife as usual, and could even keep his early morning appointments and return to breakfast if he so desired. However, the house was occupied. A Hungarian family lived in it. The father kept a stationary and notion bazaar next to Heise's Harner shop on Polk Street, while the oldest son played a third violin in the orchestra of a theater. The family rented the house unfurnished for $35, paying extra for the water. But one Sunday, as Trina and McTeague on their way home from their usual walk turned into the cross street on which the little house was situated, they became promptly aware of an unwanted bustle going on upon the sidewalk in front of it. A dray was back against the curb. An express wagon drove away loaded with furniture, bedsteads, looking glasses, and washbowls littered the sidewalks. The Hungarian family were moving out. "'Oh, Mac, look,' gasped Trina. "'Sure, sure,' muttered the dentist. After that they spoke but little. For upwards of an hour the two stood upon the sidewalk opposite, watching intently all that went forward, absorbed, excited. On the evening of the next day they returned and visited the house, finding a great delight in going from room to room and imagining themselves installed therein. Here would be the bedroom, here the dining room, here a charming little parlor. As they came out upon the front steps once more they met the owner, an enormous red-faced fellow, so fat that his walking seemed merely a certain movement of his feet by which he pushed his stomach along in front of him. Trina talked with him a few moments, but arrived at no understanding, and the two went away after giving him their address. At supper that night, McTeague said, "'Huh? What do you think, Trina?' Trina put her chin in the air, tilting back her heavy tiara of swarthy hair. "'I am not so sure yet. Thirty-five dollars and the water extra. I don't think we can afford it, Mac.' "'Ah, oh, pshaw!' growled the dentist. "'Sure we can.' "'It isn't only that,' said Trina. "'but it'll cost so much to make the change. "'Ah, you talks though we were paupers. "'Ain't we got five thousand dollars?' "'Trina flushed on the instant, "'even to the lobes of her tiny pale ears, "'and put her lips together. "'Now, Mac, you know I don't want you should talk like that. "'That money's never, never to be touched. "'And you've been saving up a good deal besides,' "'went on McTeague, "'exasperated at Trina's persistent economies. "'How much money have you got "'in that little brass match-safe "'in the bottom of your trunk?' "'Pretty near a hundred dollars, I guess. Ah, sure.' He shut his eyes and nodded his great head in a knowing way. Trina had more than that in the brass match-safe in question, but her instinct of hoarding had led her to keep it a secret from her husband. Now she lied to him with prompt fluency. "'A hundred dollars. 
What are you talking of, Mac? I've not got fifty. I've not got thirty. Oh, let's take that little house, broke in McTeague. We got the chance now, and it may never come again. Come on, Trina, shall we? Say, come on, shall we, huh? We'd have to be awful saving if we did, Mac. Well, sure, I say let's take it. I don't know, said Trina, hesitating. Wouldn't it be lovely to have a house all to ourselves? But let's not decide until tomorrow. The next day the owner of the house called. Trina was out at her morning's marketing, and the dentist, who had no one in the chair at the time, received him in the parlors. Before he was well aware of it, McTeague had concluded the bargain. The owner bewildered him with a world of phrases, made him believe that it would be a great saving to move into the little house, and finally offered it to him water-free. "'All right, all right,' said McTeague. "'I'll take it.' The other immediately produced a paper. "'Well, then, suppose you sign for the first month's rent, and we'll call it a bargain. That's business, you know.' And McTeague, hesitating, signed. "'I'd like to have talked more with my wife about it first, he said, dubiously. "'Oh, that's all right.' answered the owner, easily. I guess if the head of the family wants a thing, that's enough. McTeague could not wait until lunchtime to tell the news to Trina. As soon as he heard her come in, he laid down the plaster of Paris mold he was making and went out into the kitchen and found her chopping up onions. Well, Trina, he said, we've got that house. I've taken it. What do you mean? she answered, quickly. The dentist told her. And you signed a paper for the first month's rent? Sure, sure. That's business, you know. "'Well, why did you do it?' cried Trina. "'You might have asked me something about it. "'Now what have you done? "'I was talking with Mrs. Ryer about that house "'while I was out this morning, "'and she said the Hungarians moved out "'because it was absolutely unhealthy. "'There's water been standing in the basement for months. "'And she told me, too,' Trina went on indignantly, "'that she knew the owner, "'and she was sure we could get the house for thirty "'if we'd bargained for it. "'Now what have you gone and done? "'I hadn't made up my mind about taking the house at all, "'and now I won't take it.' with the water in the basement and all. Well, well, stammered McTeague helplessly. We needn't go in if it's unhealthy. But you've signed a paper, cried Trina, exasperated. You've got to pay that first month's rent, anyhow, to forfeit it. Oh, you are so stupid. There's thirty-five dollars just thrown away. I shan't go into that house. We won't move a foot out of here. I've changed my mind about it, and there's water in the basement besides. Well, I guess we can stand thirty-five dollars, mumbled the dentist, if we've got to. Thirty-five dollars just thrown out the window,' cried Trina, her teeth clicking, every instinct of her parsimony aroused. "'Oh, you the thick-wittedest man that I ever knew. Do you think we're millionaires? Oh, to think of losing thirty-five dollars like that!' Tears were in her eyes, tears of grief as well as of anger. Never had McTeague seen his little woman so aroused. Suddenly she rose to her feet and slammed the chopping bowl down upon the table. "'Well, I won't pay a nickel of it,' she exclaimed. "'Huh?' "'What? What?' stammered the dentist, taken all aback by her outburst. "'I say that you will find that money, that thirty-five dollars yourself. "'Why, why, it's your stupidity got us into this fix, "'and you'll be the one that'll suffer by it. "'I can't do it. I won't do it. "'We'll, we'll share and share alike. "'Why, you said you told me you'd take the house if the water was free. "'I never did. I never did. "'How can you stand there and say such a thing?' "'You did tell me that,' vociferated McTeague, beginning to get angry in his turn. "'Mac, I didn't, and you know it. And what's more, I won't pay a nickel. Mr. Hyes pays his bill next week. It's forty-three dollars, and you can just pay the thirty-five out of that.' "'Why, you got a whole hundred dollars saved up in your match-safe,' shouted the dentist, throwing out an arm with an awkward gesture. "'You pay half, and I'll pay half. That's only fair.' "'No, no,' 
No, exclaimed Trina. It's not a hundred dollars. You won't touch it. You won't touch my money, I tell you. Ah, uh, how does it happen to be yours, I'd like to know? It's mine. It's mine. It's mine, cried Trina, her face scarlet, her teeth clicking like the snap of a closing purse. It ain't any more yours than it is mine. Every penny of it is mine. Ah, what a fine fix you'd get me into, growled the dentist. I've signed the paper with the owner. That's business, you know. That's business, you know. And now you go back on me. Suppose we'd taken the house. We'd a shared the rent, wouldn't we? Just as we do here. Trina shrugged her shoulders with a great affectation of indifference and began chopping the onions again. You settle it with the owner, she said. It's your affair. You've got the money. She pretended to assume a certain calmness as though the matter was something that no longer affected her. Her manner exasperated McTeague all the more. No, I won't. No, I won't. I won't either, he shouted. I'll pay my half and he can come to you for the other half. Trina put a hand over her ear to shut out his clamor. Ah, don't try and be smart, cried McTeague. Come now, yes or no, will you pay your half? You heard what I said. Will you pay it? No. Miser! shouted McTeague. Miser! You're worse than old Zerkow. All right, all right, keep your money. I'll pay the whole thirty-five. I'd rather lose it than be such a miser as you. Haven't you got anything to do, returned Trina, instead of staying here and abusing me? Well then, for the last time, will you help me out? Trina cut the heads of a fresh bunch of onions and gave no answer. Huh? Will you? I'd like to have my kitchen to myself, please, she said in a mincing way, irritating to a last degree. The dentist stamped out of the room, banging the door behind him. For nearly a week the breach between them remained unhealed. Trina only spoke to the dentist in monosyllables, while he, exasperated at her calmness and frigid reserve, sulked in his dental parlors, muttering terrible things beneath his mustache, or finding solace in his concertina, playing his six lugubrious airs over and over again, or swearing frightful oaths at his canary. When Hyes paid his bill, McTeague, in a fury, sent the amount to the owner of the little house. There was no formal reconciliation between the dentist and his little woman. Their relations readjusted themselves inevitably. By the end of the week they were as amicable as ever, but it was long before they spoke of the little house again. Nor did they ever revisit it of a Sunday afternoon. A month or so later the Ryers told them that the owner himself had moved in. The McTeagues never occupied that little house. But Trina suffered a reaction after the quarrel. She began to be sorry she had refused to help her husband, sorry she had brought matters to such an issue. One afternoon, as she was at work on the Noah's Ark animals, she surprised herself crying over the affair. She loved her old bear too much to do him an injustice, and perhaps, after all, she had been in the wrong. Then it occurred to her how pretty it would be to come up behind him unexpectedly and slip the money, thirty-five dollars, into his hand and pull his huge head down to her and kiss his bald spot as she used to do in the days before they were married. Then she hesitated, pausing in her work, her knife dropping into her lap, a half-whittled figure between her fingers. If not thirty-five dollars, then at least fifteen or sixteen, her share of it. But a feeling of reluctance, a sudden revolt against this intended generosity arose in her. No... No, she said to herself, I'll give him ten dollars. I'll tell him it's all I can afford. It is all I can afford. She hastened to finish the figure of the animal she was then at work upon, putting in the ears and tail with a drop of glue, and tossing it into the basket at her side. Then she rose and went into the bedroom and opened her trunk, taking the key from under a corner of the carpet where she kept it hid. At the very bottom of her trunk, under her bridal dress, she kept her savings, 
It was all in change, half dollars and dollars for the most part, with here and there a gold piece. Long since the little brass matchbox had overflowed. Trina kept the surplus in a chamois skin sack she had made from an old chest protector. Just now, yielding to an impulse which often seized her, she drew out the matchbox and the chamois sack, and emptying the contents on the bed, counted them carefully. It came to one hundred and sixty-five dollars, all told. She counted it and recounted it and made little piles of it, and rubbed the gold pieces between the folds of her apron until they shone. "'Ah, yes, ten dollars is all I can afford to give Mac,' said Trina. "'And even then, think of it, ten dollars. It will be four or five months before I can save that again. But, dear old Mac, I know it would make him feel glad, and perhaps,' she added, suddenly taken with an idea, "'perhaps Mac will refuse to take it.' She took a ten-dollar piece from the heap and put the rest away. Then she paused. "'No, not the gold piece,' she said to herself. "'It's too pretty. He can have the silver.' She made the change and counted out ten silver dollars into her palm. But what a difference it made in the appearance and weight of the little chamois bag. The bag was shrunken and withered. Long wrinkles appeared running downward from the drawstring. It was a lamentable sight. Trina looked longingly at the ten broad pieces in her hand. Then suddenly all her intuitive desire of saving, her instinct of hoarding, her love of money for the money's sake rose strong within her. No, 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 she said. I can't do it. It may be mean, but I can't help it. It's stronger than I. She returned the money to the bag and locked it and the brass matchbox in her trunk, turning the key with a long breath of satisfaction. She was a little troubled, however, as she went back into the sitting room and took up her work. I didn't used to be so stingy, she told herself. Since I won in the lottery, I've become a regular little miser. It's growing on me, but never mind. It's a good fault. And anyhow, I can't help it. End of chapter 10